Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. Good morning on this 2nd of September 2021. So sometimes uh, I start off my day after my time with the Lord in the Word and some time of prayer. I turn to the headline news and I trip over something. Like I trip over a word. A word stops me short. And I think to myself, you know, we ought to pause and consider that word. I consider and pause the over the fact that this this word, this distinctively Christian ecclesiastical word appears in the headline news today. And so today I tripped over the word parish, P-A-R-I-S-H, parish, not parish like someone died. That's got an E in it. This is parish with an A. And it's in the headlines today um, because it is a civil division of the state of Louisiana, like a county might be where you live, or a district. Um, It's a civil division of the state of Louisiana. So, you know, you're hearing about a particular parish in Louisiana where, you know, there's every road under five feet of sand or something like that. All of the people in a particular parish today in Louisiana don't have power, such as these are the headlines. But the word parish is, at first, ecclesiastical. It's, a, it's an ecclesiastical unit of an area committed to one pastor. That's how a parish was named. Like, these are the people of a particular parish, and that was the geography, the ecclesiastical unit that was committed to one pastor. That was going to be the place where one pastor was designated to serve. These are the people of your parish. This is this is an area, a region, yes, but it's a people. And so the parish is a geographical term or a civil division um, adopted from an ecclesiastical term and a designation of a people. It was a community, a local community composed of a people who constituted a particular parish, a group of people who would be shepherded by one pastor. Now, I got to tell you, when an ecclesiastical term like that shows up in the common parlance of the day and in the headline news, you and I as Christians ought to do more than trip over it. We ought to, um, we ought to set it up on a stand and shine a light on it and say there was a point in time, at least in the state of Louisiana, but, but elsewhere as well, There was a point in time when we did not divide ourselves uh, along lines of red and blue or vaxxers and anti-vaxxers or pro-life and pro-abortion or whatever other distinctions you think exist among people today. We actually 
saw ourselves as communities of people living together in a place under a shepherd. And even if you didn't participate in the life of the quote-unquote local church, you were still in the parish committed to one pastor. <laughs> you, if you lived in the region, then you belonged to the herd. Even if you were wandering away from it, even if you were living separate from the church body, you were in the body. You were in the area committed to the shepherding of a pastor. I want you to think about that today. I want you to consider your county or maybe your town, certainly your street, maybe your school district. Figure out whatever geography you want to lay claim to today and lift it up to God as an ecclesiastical unit of area. And you and I um, are not likely pastors, pastors in the traditional sense. But I want you to pray today for the, for the residents in your region, your area, your subdivision, your local community, the, whatever civil division you live in. And I want you to lift it up today as a parish. At least, at least under the shepherding influence of Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd. So there you go. There's a prayer point today from the headline news. When we come back, Ben Johnson will be here. He's a media reporter from The Daily Wire, and he and I will start off with the Texas Heartbeat Law. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my right. Ben Johnson is back. He's a media reporter for The Daily Wire. You can find him at dailywire.com. Ben, good morning. Good morning to you, Carmen. So we could be singing that little ditty about how a bill becomes a law because we have had lots of conversations about heartbeat bills, but we're not having a conversation about a heartbeat bill. We're having a conversation about a heartbeat law, and this is a pretty major news story. Um, And part of the coverage that I've seen is how – um, irate those on the left are that this became a law and no one told them it was coming. Uh, and so uh, there's a little bit of who's paying attention to what out there across America. Tell us what's happening with Texas heartbeat law. Well, you're exactly right that uh, this is one of the first times we've been ever, ever been able to use that phrase altogether at once about a heartbeat initiative. Uh, there have been lots of heartbeat laws going back. My friend uh, Janet Porter uh, was in favor of one back in uh, the late 1990s. So as, as long as I've been around uh, on the political scene, this has been an issue, particularly uh, in my home state of Ohio. Texas passed one, and usually the law, whether it's a heartbeat law or anything uh, that is a new and innovative pro-life law, is stopped before it ever be, before it ever takes effect. It may eventually take effect, but it's always stopped on the first day. Uh, what inevitably happens is the law passes. There's uh, as much drama as possible in the legislative chamber. We saw a little bit of that with Texas. But then uh, after, after the law inevitably passes as it will, then the legislative uh, session comes to a close and you have the beginning of uh, the official legal challenges. And so they will sue in a friendly court 
and they'll file an emergency injunction, usually the night before the law was to take effect, and the law will stop dead in its tracks the moment it was supposed to take effect, usually at 11 p.m., the night before it would have uh, finally become law, and there's no way to enforce it. So essentially, pro-life laws have a history of being aborted themselves. This law has come to fruition. It is the law. It has been for more than 24 hours as we speak. And uh, essentially, it says that it is illegal to perform an abortion uh, at uh, six weeks uh, forward, the moment that a fetal heartbeat can be detected. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to a lot of people that if the absence of a heartbeat means that your body is dead, then the presence of a heartbeat should mean that your body is alive and it's wrong to kill an innocent human being without due process of the law under the Constitution. So it's, it's very clear why this law was passed. Uh, what is unique about this bill that allowed it to take effect is that every other bill makes a legal category that is enforced by the state. So if, uh, if an abortionist performs uh, an abortion uh, under certain circumstances, the state will come and arrest that person, and there'll be legal ramifications in a criminal court. The Texas law is unique because it allows individuals to sue in a civil court. So instead of the state suing, any individual under the law, the wording is, quote, any person in the state of Texas can sue an abortionist, uh, and they will have at least a minimum payout from the abortionist of $10,000 plus court costs, and possibly even more, according to what the judge decides. So uh, what price can you put on a human life, really? So that's, that's what's innovative about this, is that when they went to court, they can't say, we want an injunction against the state of Texas, we want an injunction against Ken Paxton, uh, we want an injunction against Greg Abbott. They said, any person in the state of Texas could bring this. What are you going to do, list millions upon millions of names, every legal resident in the state of Texas who could bring a lawsuit? Uh, so they had no way to legally stop it from becoming a law. It is now law, and it will have to be dealt with on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, so hats off to the pro-life movement uh, in the state of Texas for bringing this to fruition. And now the way you're going to hear this reported from um, from a different perspective is that women seeking an abortion can no longer do so in the state of Texas after the point in time when they you know, are discernibly preg pregnant. Uh, many women don't. Uh, aren't aren't even aware that they're pregnant um, this early in a pregnancy. And so just so that everyone listening knows what to anticipate in terms of the coverage, um, what you are going to hear from those who advocate for uh, for abortion, people who are pro-abortion, you're going to hear that this is limiting women's access to health care in the state of Texas. And so just be watching for that language, be listening for that, um, and be, you know, and be ready as a person who is pro-life to articulate, um, you know, what Ben has just said, which is, you know, from the point in time that a human heartbeat is discernible, um, if, we, if we acknowledge that death comes when your heartbeat stops, then when does life come? I mean, is can we not call it a human life when there is a human heartbeat discernible? Like, that's the conversation that we need to be prepared to have. And once a person's heartbeat is discernible, do they not have rights? Uh, not least of which in the United States of America would be their own right to life. All right. So um, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, uh, Ben, I want to talk with you about the way that people are being talked about um, in the news and how— um, how people of faith are being portrayed. Uh, and and then I'd also want to talk about how this is, you know, not necessarily you can't line these two groups up and say these two groups are the same group of people. I get that. 
But I was also really stunned um, to hear the deplorables conversation, um, Clinton's characterization of Trump supporters as deplorables. I, I was so surprised to see that word emerge again in uh, in the headline news and the conversations of the day. So let's talk about the, the spin that reporters put on the characterization of people um, who, you know, I guess they don't like. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right. Uh, the Constitution of the United States of America does not just guarantee uh, the freedom of speech or the freedom of, let's say, worship. It guarantees a freedom of religion, which means that my faith impacts what I say and how I say it and every aspect of my life. But that makes some people very uncomfortable and they would like to see uh people of faith restrained in many ways. Um, so, Ben, that's my segue into the conversation about the way reporters want to not only talk about people of faith, but want other reporters to portray people of faith in the media. What's going on? Well, it was a revelatory comment, uh, kind of a, a, an in-depth uh, view of how reporters look at people of faith. Uh, it came out uh, on Twitter, of course, there was a, a story in the Daily Memphian, the uh, Tennessee newspaper, by a reporter named Bill Freeze about uh, the governor of Mississippi, Tate Reeves. Someone asked him at a conference, why is it that you have a lower vaccination rate in the state of Mississippi, and does, uh, does faith play a role in this? And uh, he said, his exact words were, when you believe in eternal life, when you believe that living on this earth is but a blip on a screen, then you don't have to be so scared of things. He immediately added, though, God tells us to take necessary precautions. We have all the opportunities and abilities to do that. The reality is working together, we can move beyond this. We can move forward. We can move on beyond COVID-19. So he was clearly not telling people don't get vaccinated. He was not telling people don't take precautions to avoid contracting COVID-19. But that was how it was portrayed by the Daily Memphian. Now, you say, well, that's a, a local paper. Uh, however, a New York Times reporter retweeted this. A lady named Emily Flitter uh, retweeted it and said, this is a template for the way that the media should deal with people of faith from now on. She said, in order to perform our roles as public watchdogs, reporters have to be imaginative contrarians. We need to think, what if the person in power really is crazy enough to do something people think's out of the question? And um, when, when she goes on, she says, people think we're just scaremongering or sensationalizing an issue for our own purposes. No! Exclamation point. Someone really needs to put a hand up and say, hey, do you truly not care your constituents are dying because of your belief in an afterlife? And then later on, this got likened, of course, that people of faith are like the Taliban because faith, I guess, is the common element. It's, it's hard to draw any further lines there, and yet people are continually doing so. So uh, essentially what, what she's saying is that uh, anyone who is a person of faith should be looked at as though they're a medieval obscurantist, incapable of discerning science and indifferent to the suffering of human life. Uh, I'm not sure that that's reality. Uh, it certainly is not the case. Uh, this is essentially a case of slander against Governor Tate Reeves, and yet uh, she's proposing this, teeing this up as though that should be the frame on every story of faith. And what those of us who consume media, who are people of faith, should realize is that it's actually been the template for a very long time. Anytime you see someone who is uh, identified publicly as a person of faith and who takes his or her faith seriously, 
that frame is already on the story. And if you read discerningly, you'll see very clearly how the reporter manipulates language or how they uh, move things around in order to make the person look like some kind of an extremist or an obscurantist for a belief that there is a higher power and an afterlife, a belief that is still shared by the vast majority, uh, more than 80, 90 percent of Americans. Obscurantus. Obscurantus. Is that an <laughs> I-S or a U-S at the end? Uh, I-S-T. Uh, yeah. Obscurantist. Uh, and, and Obscurantist. What, uh, someone who is opposed to, um, uh, to uh, letting the light of knowledge move forward freely. <clears throat> so um, I'm a light shining in the darkness, and I am not willing to put my light under a basket or a bushel. Um, and so I resist the characterization of me as an obscurantist. There you go. I have now used it in a sentence. Um, deplorable is a word that is back. Deplorable is a term uh, often used, most often used as an adjective, but we had a candidate for the presidency of the United States named Hillary Clinton who used it as a noun um, and put uh, people in a basket of deplorables. And the deplorable speech um, might have shocked us five years ago, but there is at least one Washington Post feature writer who says um, that it was prescient. And a few things stood out to me in this, Ben, that I thought as a media a media reporter, a media, a guy who is watching what the media is talking about and how the media is talking about people of faith. Um, I thought this characterization of of what I would have absolutely viewed as one of the great mistakes that Hillary Clinton has ever made, which was describing uh, half of the people who supported Donald Trump as a basket of deplorables. Because, And then she used the term irredeemable. And in the context of the speech that she was giving, she was telling people that she was the only thing that stood between them and the apocalypse. And so the speech was the whole the entirety of the speech was really staggering. Um, But it's back because this Washington Post feature writer, this is not an opinion piece. This is put forward by The Washington Post as a feature, um, says, you know, she was only wrong because she used the she reduced it by half. Because she said half of Trump reporter Trump supporters belonged in the basket of deplorables. This person is saying that the error she made was in under uh, undercounting the number. And I just lift this up because I felt like this was something that was a political mistake that everybody agreed on. And apparently it's not. And there are people who see it not only as not a mistake, but prescient. And that's the word in the headline. And um and that everybody that voted for Trump, so that's like 81 million people, are deplorable and irredeemable. And this characterization is really troubling to me in terms of deepening the the polarization of us as a people. Well, that's that's precisely the most important point here, which is that uh, you, know, you have a nation that is so clearly and very evenly divided, as we saw in the last election. America has been a 51-49 country for a very long time. And when you look at the numbers, uh, there are tens of millions of people who voted for one candidate or another, not because they love everything that candidate stood for, who that person is uh, intimately and in every single way, but because they thought this person is better than the other guy and they were scared to death of the other guy or the other lady. And uh, to lump everyone in together is saying that uh, removing all distinctions, all differences, all nuance, 
uh, is what they used to accuse people who were deplorable of doing, uh, saying that uh, you're incapable of seeing between individuals, uh, that uh, not everyone of a certain race or a certain ethnicity is the same. Uh, and yet they're applying all of that to people who have a certain voting pattern in one election or two elections. Uh, so they, it's, it's a matter of, uh, of hypocrisy, first of all. But the, the deeper point is the one that you make, which is that uh, Hillary Clinton made a terrible political mistake. Uh, it's impossible to win as president of the United States, or it should be, by continually dividing the American people and looking down with contempt upon the people you're going to rule. Uh, it should be impossible to rule that way and to be elected that way. And she paid the backlash in part for uh, that and for a lot of other political reasons as well. In order to deepen the divisions, uh, this this essentially is, is saying we need to deepen the divisions between the two parties. We need to continue to churn up the animosity, churn up the divisions, churn up uh, the contempt that we have. And it shows how siloed people in the media are from the rest of America, as you say, 70, 80 million people who voted for Donald Trump last time around and uh, who still support him in many places. In many places uh, where I drive around, you still see Trump banners out. Those people are not deplorable. We may agree or disagree regardless of what sign you're holding up and what candidate you're supporting. But all of us need to realize not only are we all Americans and we need to do what is good for the, the good of this country uh, so that we can be a shining city on a hill and a beacon uh, that demonstrates God's goodness to us and to the rest of the world, but also that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of how we view one another. We've understood that we are brothers and sisters in Christ across ethnic lines, across sexual lines. That's also true across political lines. Every one of us was made in the image and likeness of God from the very youngest time, from even before our heart begins to beat until we breathe our last. We need to love and respect one another. And this piece is doing everything that it can to violate that gospel teaching. Ben Johnson, as always, thank you so much for your perspective. Thank you for joining us this morning. You guys can find Ben at Daily Wire. I'm going to get the right the website exactly right. Dailywire.com. You can also find him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. We'll be right back. We're going to take some time this morning to pause to pray. If you're like me, your litany of prayer concerns is long. Kathy Branzell is going to join us from the National Day of Prayer Task Force, and we're going to we're going to pray through some of the concerns of the day, the upcoming anniversary of 9-11, the situation in Afghanistan, Labor Day this Monday, return to school, lots of things to be praying about and for on this Thursday morning. We'll be right back. It's easy to love someone when they agree with you and difficult when they don't. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Remember those days when your toddler or grade school kid wanted to please you? Those were the days, weren't they? But then something happened. That cute kid became a jumbled up, disagreeable, emotional mess. And all of a sudden, it isn't so easy to love them anymore. If you have a teen or preteen living in your home, I want to remind you that no matter how bad things get, your child needs unconditional love when it's easy and when it's not. If your child feels there's something they could do to lose your love, be very clear right now about how you love her or him without condition. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. 
or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Branzell is back from the National Day of Prayer Task Force, my dear friend, and I love to visit um, with you, Kathy, about how you're praying, what you're praying for, and to lead us into prayer uh, surrounding particular things going on. So let's talk a little bit about praying through the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Yes, please. So much going on in our hearts. Uh, right now so much. I I just, uh, this has absolutely been a season of praying continually with everything happening around our nation and around the world. But um, throughout scripture, God tells us, um, commands his people even uh, for our good to remember, to, to look back and remember and to talk about um, his faithfulness what he's done, um, what's happened in our history so that we can see his hand in his heart. And there's so many times that we don't understand pain points like 9-11. And um, in talking to people who have lost um, people who have suffered loss, we suffer the loss here, um, their heart cry is for us to not forget to not just um, hurry on to moving forward in life. Uh, Yes, we need to keep moving, but to not forget what happened, to not forget the suffering, to not forget where we were, how we felt, and we can all um, go back and remember where we were, where we were standing, the images we saw on that day, and to realize how many people lost that day, uh, spouses, children, grandchildren, and more, brothers and sisters, parents, and and not forget and to be prayerful for them um, and our nation as we remember. When you use the term um, remember, I think one of the things that comes to my heart and mind is what it really means to become a member again of an event, mm-hmm. of a people, of a moment. And so when we're inviting one another to remember, we are becoming members again of the the moment in time when we collectively experienced something that we all promised to never forget. And like everything over, over the passage of time, other realities intrude in terms of, of what we're thinking about right now, what's top of mind, what we're paying attention to, what's most acute. Um, And then, you know, that issue passes because there's another one that emerges. And so one of the things I think we're inviting each other to do and to be patient with one another in doing it is returning to the moment, returning to the time, telling the stories, remembering, becoming a member again of that experience, which we all experienced together. And yet each one had their own unique experience in the midst of it. That's powerful. That that is that is a really powerful thought. And 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 to you know, it's just like when you take the the word community, and and realize that's common unity. And so, how in this coming back and joining together 
in this moment, uh, this day, um, remembering where we were there, but, but also just walking through the years, the last 20 years together. Um, and, and I pray that many of, uh, many of our listeners have been to the 9-11 Memorial there in New York. Um, I've had the privilege of going to the Memorial Chapel um, at the Pentagon and, uh, of course, never forgetting Flight 93 um, as well. And just collectively, um, with our hearts sensitive to that moment and now, uh, remembering, remembering and praying for the families, praying uh, for for the continued suffering, grief, uh, uh, grief never completely goes away. When somebody has been knit into the fabric of your life, um, when we love, love is such a powerful, powerful fruit of the spirit, um, and it connects our hearts with other hearts, and it connects our hearts with God's heart. And I believe that uh, as a Christian, you can ask God, "Break my heart for what breaks yours." It's it, uh, it can be a, a scary prayer at times to see things from the heart of God, but it moves us with compassion and it resets our focus and our hearts in the right way um, so that we can uh, grieve with those who grieve, weep with those who weep, and rejoice with those who rejoice. Talking with Kathy Branzell from the National Day of Prayer Task Force, we're talking about uh, how we're going to pray through the 20th anniversary of 9-11, encouraging each of us to, you know, plan in advance uh, how we are going to observe and memorialize, revisit the moment, remember together, um, be agents of of grace in our own communities and in the fellowship of people where we live, you know, recognize that an entire generation, um, more than a generation, now lives that did not experience the events of of 9-11. And so, as we say, we will never forget, we have to help them become members of an event that they never experienced. And so, how does that happen? And we as people of faith know exactly how that happens. Um, And so, this is an opportunity for us in our own families and communities and in the culture writ large to, to demonstrate what it looks like to to go somewhere to a moment in time where you didn't actually live the moment, um, but it is a part of who we are and it forms who we are as a people. So I'm, of course, thinking about the foot of the cross. Um, I did not stand there in real time, but I have knelt there um, in, you know, over and over and over and over and over again. And so let's, um, let's consider the kind of witness and testimony that we have as people of faith when events like 9-11, anniversaries of events like 9-11 come on the calendar and how we can be people who lead into um, what it looks like to remember, to take people uh, back to become members again of a moment together. We're going to continue our conversation with Kathy Brenzel in just a moment. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation with Kathy Branzell from the National Day of Prayer Task Force. We're talking about prayer, what we're praying for today, how we're praying for things um, happening in our lives and in uh, our communities, in our culture, around the world, how we put it all 
in God's hands. Um, so, Kathy, as we approach the 20th anniversary of 9-11, one of the things I observed yesterday was that 20 years ago today, or 20 years ago yesterday, you know, I, I'll just confess, there just wasn't a whole lot I knew about Afghanistan. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, I didn't know the name of one person who lived there. And now I know the names of many. I didn't yeah. know the name, I, you know, I might have known, if you'd have pressed me, I might have been able to come up with, you know, the that Kabul is their nation's capital, but I guarantee you I wouldn't have come up with Kandahar. I wouldn't have come up with <laughs> it's just like right, um Jalalabad. Right. I wouldn't I wouldn't have known the names. I wouldn't those would not have rolled off my tongue at all. I would have been very hard pressed to even tell you exactly where it was. I get I guarantee you I wouldn't have been able to tell you that it was landlocked. I mean I just on and on and on. I might have been right. able to tell you that it was a place where empires go to die. But mm-hmm. um but but I wouldn't have known that there were 14 tribal groups there. Like, I just, there's just so much that I have learned about Afghanistan because we have now been there for 20 years. And proximity um, feeds my prayer life in relationship to the people of Afghanistan. So let's pivot from how am I going to pray through the anniversary of 9-11 and how am I praying and how shall I pray for the people of Afghanistan and the circumstances in which they now find themselves? Absolutely. And and we were just talking right before the break about how, you know, we have this generation now, uh, you know, coming into view that, that, you know, wasn't with us when 9-11 happened. They have no memory of it um, uh, or hadn't been born yet even. And so how do we connect what's happening in the news now? How do we help um, even people understand the connectivity of that that 20 years that that there, there's a direct connection with what's happening in Afghanistan to what happened to us on 9/11 but then going into uh this idea and you and I talked a lot about justice and need to continue to talk about justice this next year um but to understand the made in the image of God Let's, you know, just starting there with our Afghan brothers and sisters. And um, I, I've i been talking on the phone. I mean, I never in my entire lifetime would have thought that I would be on the phone with people from Afghanistan just pleading for help, pleading to be rescued. Um, we, we need to understand that our brothers and sisters in Christ over there are now being hunted down. And, and we need to be on our faces, praying for them. We need to be helping to rescue them. And um, life lessons, it, life should should lead us to lessons, to learn more, to know more, to pray more, to pray with wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And um, and then the, the, the other side of that coin is to, Jesus told us, pray for your enemies. You know, bless those who curse you. And we need to be praying for every single person, every soul um, right now in Afghanistan um, so that, uh, you know, praying that the Lord would visit them, that they would have dreams and visions, that they would know that he is the king of kings, that he is the one true God, that they would come to a saving knowledge of him, you know, that people would drop their guns and drop to their knees and worship him as Lord, and um, that and that alone uh, would would save Afghanistan. Mm. Amen. Um, 
because I only get, you know, limited time with you and I'm greedy, um, I'd love to talk with you about praying for and through and around Labor Day, which is this coming uh, coming Monday. So what are your thoughts in terms of how I can be praying for people in the business community, for people, you know, working in all kinds of places and spaces? Are, are there workplace prayers? Oh, yes. So many. And and understand that we don't uh, we don't go visit Jesus on Sunday and then leave him at home on Monday when we go to work. Um, that we we carry the Holy Spirit into our workplace, whether it's at home or in a building, in a shopping center, uh, in retail, it, it, wherever we go, um, restaurants, in the C-suite, uh, we take the Holy Spirit with us. And so we want to live out and, and pray out uh, prayers of excellence, of integrity, to take our faith to work, to realize that our workplace is our mission field. For those of you going to work, right now that have been thinking, you know, when I retire, I'm going to go into full-time ministry. No, no, no. The moment you said yes to Jesus, you stepped into full-time ministry. And even if you don't see how, there is kingdom purpose in your workplace and in you going to that workplace today. And so know that people are praying for you and and uh, you, you can be praying for your coworkers, for the owner of the business. I'm going to pray that uh, that you're praying for your boss. There are all sorts of statistics about people um, that the, the incredibly high number of people who would rather their boss get fired than get a raise. And uh, just like the situation with Afghanistan or in your marriage or in any other situation or relationship, when you pray for someone, when you pray passionately and pray blessing and pray God's presence for someone, their lives change and your relationship change. So if you want to change your workplace, pray for your boss, pray for your coworkers and walk in the integrity and character of Christ as you're there. I love that. Um, so a workplace environment uh, around which we've been praying pretty frequently, but maybe as kids go back to school, like we could be praying for teachers as well in new and different ways. Um, talk with us about sort of some back to school prayers and praying for the hearts of teachers. I know you actually have a resource related to this at nationaldayofprayer.org. We do. And um, and all through the month of September, we will have prayer resources for the workplace as well. But uh, yes, August, we focused completely on education. So there's several articles there. But we do need to be praying into. And so pray that, that uh, teachers um, will, again, just just teach in the integrity and the love of Jesus Christ, that they would see their students as, as a mission field. Uh, students are coming in very confused um, that so much has gone on in the last couple of years. And so be praying uh, for teachers who have such an incredible influence um, on our students, on our children. Uh, most people, if they are asked as adults, successful adults, you know, who who was your mentor? Who was your inspiration? Uh, 85% will name a teacher or a coach, uh, somebody that was in their school system as they were growing up. And so pray that they would be positive, godly, biblical influences in this um, younger part of our now generation that will grow up to be the leaders, the, the government, the military, the teachers, uh, the business owners of um, later on in our generation. 
So I have a quick, um, I'll make it quick, but I have a, a, a quick testimony, a Thanksgiving prayer um, related to school. Um, one of the things that I've been praying for for a number of years is that, you know, is that God would send somebody to Matthew's school who would be his real friend, like to have a real friend. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he's a special needs kid. And it's for whatever reason, like, you know, I don't know. He's delightful. But, you know, right. I don't know why the hearts of others aren't warmed toward him. And so uh, anyway, God sent a kid this year and his name is Carl and he's precious. He's just totally precious. Carl actually graduated from high school in another part of um, the state. But here in our county, you can actually stay in high school until you're 21 um, if you, you know, if you qualify. And so even though he graduated from high school in another part of the state, his family moved into our community so that Carl could keep going to school um, because like Matthew, Carl has some special needs. And so Carl needed to ride home a couple of days ago. And so he jumped in with us. And uh, and and as we're driving home, I'm, of course, you know, politely asking him a number of questions, trying to get to know him. And I learned that, you know, Carl was born in Haiti and he was adopted into this family uh, here in the United States when he was seven. He has a twin who's in college. Like, there's just so many things about him that I, I didn't know. And he's so delightful and so precious. And I feel like Matthew has a real friend for the first time, like ever. And so I'm so thankful. Like, I feel like that's a direct answer to my prayer for my kid. And it's happened through school. Um, and it's happened because, you know, there's a family that is pro-life and Christian and had a heart for orphans in in Haiti. And I'm just right. I mean, just just so many things about that that I know are answers to prayers. And, you know, whoever Carl's mom is or was, like, I'm sure it's an answer to her prayer for her kid as well, that he would Mm -hmm. end up in a place and in the midst of a people who would love and appreciate him for who he is, regardless of his sort of capacity to... um, to function in the same ways that we uh, sort of value most in the culture um, in which we live. So anyway, there you go. That was my uh, answered prayer testimony of the day in my own family. Mm, Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Kathy Branzell, as always, thank you so much for joining us. You guys can find really great resources for prayer, um, provoking your prayers, both for the classroom as well as the workplace, the nation, and the world. You can find great prayer resources at nationaldayofprayer.org. National Day of Prayer is not just a day. Uh, National Day of Prayer is the way that you and I are praying for the nation every day um, and doing so ardently and with conviction, acknowledging that God has it all in the very hollow of his hand. So what are you praying for and about today? How can we be praying for you? You can always share your prayer concerns with us on the text line at 877-933-2484. You can pick up the phone and share your prayer concerns with us um, as well. 877-933-2484. Pretty sure you have to wait until after the live broadcast to do that. Um, But as soon as the live broadcast is over, you can give us a call at that number, share your prayer concerns on the prayer line. You can also share your faith story on the faith line at that same number. So lots of opportunities for you to share with us. Uh, We love sharing with you. Fall Share is going to be upon us here in just a few days, so be uh, getting excited about that as well. Another hour up next, Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. 
If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.